The Financial Times provocatively argued this month that Emmanuel Macron is the rightful heir to the spirit of 1968. Those opposing Macron's reforms, in the name of inherited labour rights, are, and here I'm quoting, defending ancient and elitist privileges. Macron's optimism is supposedly in tune with the spirit of that revolt, while today's protesters, fearful of the future, are today's conservatives. Hello, and welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. What comes next? So today we're talking about the legacies of May 68. Half a century on, how's that moment of revolt and rebellion continue to shape the societies we live in? The commonplace understanding is that the so-called Global 68 was a beautiful moment of political promise. Perhaps too beautiful even. It was overly idealistic, perhaps naive. On this episode, we're very happy to be joined by Catherine Liu, Professor of Film and Media Studies at the University of California, Irvine, who's written widely on intellectual history. We're going to be discussing what we see as the key political and cultural legacies of May 68. Protest. Political fragmentation. The rejection of political authority. And the cult of youth. Maybe 1968 did more to demolish old norms than to overthrow an old order. We ended up with a new spirit of capitalism rather than a spirited new socialism. I was willing to die, and I and I had a martyr complex in a sense. I think we all did, and I've given up that ideal of sacrifice. Um, and I, I'm not as um, I'm not as overwhelmingly moved by injustice as I was. And now we reincarnated ourselves from within. All right, so we're very pleased to have Catherine Liu here to discuss uh, all these issues about the legacies of May 1968 with us. Um, So to get started, Catherine, uh, we should talk about protest first. Uh, Looking back on May 1968 from today, what do you see as the aspects of the revolts that particularly stand out to you? Um, Maybe we should even start with Paris, as that was in many ways the sort of linchpin of May 68, even though it might actually arguably have been one of the least important of the European 1968s. Yeah. So um, one of the things that I think um, we shouldn't de-emphasize is the campus um, is the way in which it was understood later as a, as you know very university and campus based, and there was a kind of cultural revolution that was um, in place because 
a lot of the young French um, students were um, overturning just everyday life and ways of being. And I think in ways that are difficult to imagine today. For instance, they um, started, and this is literal horizontality, they started to impose the address of everyone as tu instead of vous. Mm. What I think is really interesting is that by 1979, everyone had reversed back to vous, the formal address um, of professors and people you didn't know. But it was really this kind of like um, bubbling up, um, non-hierarchical um, push. But I have to say that it comes out not of an organic, you know, workers' movement, although all of the um, railroad workers, the LATP, the um, radio workers, media was on strike too, but we're so focused on campuses um, because it was the beginning of what the Ehrenreichs in 1977 would call professional managerial class vanguardism. And um, so when you have this kind of very elite group of students who see themselves as extremely important and what they're doing is extremely important, and their colleagues in the media are also striking against these traditionalists, the Gaullists, um, the right wing and the fascists, um, everyday life and this kind of um, history. Everyday get life, the transformations of everyday life get elevated to the height of sort of Hegelian world historical significance. And, you know, those are good things and bad things, too. I mean, the good thing is that a whole generation of people saw themselves as agents of history. The bad thing is that they saw themselves as agents of history outside of any material or social relations, but mm -hmm. in this platform that was called the campus. And I think that's crippled, like, protest culture on the left for 50 years, in fact. Yeah, um, and we see this aspect really strongly. I mean, what I think we could describe as a certain pure vol uh, voluntarism amongst those protests at the time. And I think we yep. can still see the legacy of that today. Um, yep. As you say, it sort of lacks a sort of a, a materialist or economic kind of understanding of the world which underpins it. Um, and, and a kind of casting of the students by themselves, about themselves as the agents of revolutions, as a sort of new proletarian. I mean, how yeah. do you? Yeah. yeah, and that was very, very powerful. But part of that, what I think is really important about that is that there was a sort of um, unholy alliance, a really important alliance between um, students who had been experienced enormous m amounts of social mobility because of the post-World War II economic miracle in Europe, right? So you have people like Jean-Paul Duryard who says that his family were just poor peasants and suddenly he was in Paris, he was among, um, he was with people like Jacques Lacan whose um, family was, you know, pretty grand bourgeois who made vinegar. You know, I, I like to look at the intellectual history of all of these characters by looking at, you know, what kind of social background they came from. And in fact, what happened was um, because of the ferment of the politics of the time, a lot of class differences were erased. I mean, we'll just say that right out. You know, there um, um, a lot of petty bourgeois um, actors became, you know, um, proletarianized through the university. Or you could say, like, there were few, like, authentic working class people who were actually elevated at this point, but um, the the more, the, the there was more like a, um, what do you call it, um, uh, when you go down, a, down, a voluntaristic um, D-class, 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 being D-class A, like, mm -hmm. uh, slumming, slumming. There was a lot of voluntaristic slumming. So you had enormous privileged people whose parents had been in the university, and they were often at the vanguard of these kinds of movements because they knew the university. They felt very discontented with the way that French culture and French institutions were going. And um, some of them had actually been able to travel to the United States. And that's a small majority. And, and television and also broadcast media had allowed them to see a glimpse of what was happening in the Anglo-American world. And um, one of my friends, Jean-Michel Rabaté, says that uh, one of the major things that happened in 68 was you had one day, like, everyone wearing, young people wearing, you know, like, um, rain duffel jackets and raincoats looking like, you know, older people. And then he said he didn't even know where they got the clothes. The next day they were wearing, like, velveteen um um, jackets and ruffled <laughs> shirts and, you know, women and men started wearing more unisex stuff. But it was this, you know, um, it, it was once again the cultural revolution. And we should emphasize that, too, because it was precisely what people were not thinking was that was there going to be a social revolution? And um, 
economic revolution. And unfortunately, um, everyone neglects the sort of de Gaullist, you know, return to power after the masses of people, the you know, reactionary masses decided that, you know, they wanted law and order again in France. And what you have there is a microcosm of what happens in the United States and in Britain at the same time. And I think actually all over the world, actually my glimpse of what happened in Latin America is even says that this also happened there, is that you have this very, very, very privileged group of vanguardist young people who really think of themselves as cosmopolitan, as of the left, and like the average Brazilian or the average American mm-hmm. is just, you know, pro-Vietnam War, a racist and a retard. Oh, sorry, I, I was very, very um, <laughs> on PC of me, but, but they can't, you know, they, they are not caught up with the times. And then you have this like very privileged group of young people who think they're actually ahead of the times. And yeah. that... I think, I think it's lasted. That, that's still with us today. I think so, there's a sense, sure yeah, I mean, in Latin been. America that uh, sort of, it, you know, in Mexico or Peru, that probably the more revolutionary you were as a student, the better job you were likely to get after graduation, probably, in, you know, even in state oh, service. Um, I do think wow. that in Mexico, that Mexico is one of the most violent 68s. It has a sort of different legacy. But certainly the case in right. Brazil, uh, where you have uh, the universities were completely inaccessible to the majority of Brazilians and the education system right. was a disaster. And part of the thing is the Brazilian right. 68 was the students of the political class being beaten up by the dictatorship, which caused eruption. It's a long story, but essentially the people felt that it was this, it was actually their sons and daughters who were being beaten up, particularly in Brasilia, the capital. So it was very much like that. So, um, so did the elites feel anti-authoritarian at that point because of that? Yeah, it really triggered a into- it triggered a reaction against the dictatorship then. But shortly afterwards, the dictatorship uh, instrumented uh, the harshest and most authoritarian period of its rule uh, as a reaction to this, and basically um, put the political class in its place. But enjoyed quite a lot of popularity in this phase because the economy was booming, and I don't th- mm-hmm. and most people just didn't really feel that connected to the people being beaten up. So I think we should, there's a lot more work to do in terms of understanding the transnational nature of the class conflict during this time. Because, you know, one of the things that, you know, you learn if you really delve deeply into this is that the work, the American working class was not pro-Vietnam War. It was not pro, it was, um, it may not have been in the streets with the students, but because there were still industrial jobs, there were wildcat strikes and walk-off strikes everywhere. And a lot of the um, the working-class young men who returned from Vietnam um, were very radicalized. So the working-class actually had um, was going through a period of radicalization, partially because it had good jobs and there was a surfeit of jobs. And this is what happens in the 70s is that it seems like there's an absolute... Um, attempt to target this class and to make them more precarious and to you know destroy their livelihoods which really does happen but um um there's this famous like hard hat protest in um wall street i think it's 69 or something where these um construction workers you know came with flags and they protested in favor of the war and you know, young people and countercultural types were really disgusted by this, and they said, you know, here's how reactionary they are. It turns out that it was it was staged, that they had, you know, that um the right like hired these, you know, the construction workers who were pro-war and got them to protest. But the, there was a lot of organic um, resistance to Vietnam, to the American mm-hmm. engagement in Vietnam and American military adventurism. So. Um, the working class just got the and and this is what happened with Trump too is that the working class white working class just got the shaft like they just got to be mm-hmm. the the most evil stupid um, uneducated element in um, America and it's really hard to think about how um, a vanguard class can actually lead a mass a mass political movement by demonizing the majority of working poor people mm. in its own country. I'm glad you mentioned that because I do definitely want to return to that point. But if we can move back a little bit in time and actually an example I was thinking of, um, not France, but perhaps more Italy, where the student protests there, I guess the best you can say about them is that they did spark off a wave of protests, especially amongst uh, the less formalized sections of the working class there, who, right. you know, it leads to the whole autonomist um, upsurge right. in Italy. And right. I guess that's right. the more positive side that you can see of it, um, in which the workers actually do take on more radical demands, um, something that right. perhaps didn't happen in France. But 
I guess they did. They did in Flans and in the Renault factories and everywhere else. But um, those they were the the unions and the and um, the unions were actually not in support of the students. So it was often it was it it fragmented um, any kind of student union alliance. Even though there seemed to be a moment when it was really really like the entire country was in revolt. I think it was May. It was May, fifty years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think I mean th- there's a thing that once the you know as you put it the kind of the workers want to go back home and have some sense of order um, that the students or the kind of young radicals kind of carry on their voluntaristic uh, political pursuits. Right. Yeah. I right. mean, I think a part of this is like there's a certain aesthetic of protest which is associated with 68 from, say, the yippies in the United States to like the sort of classic graffiti that everyone points to every couple of years during uh, May from France, like, you know, be realistic, demand the impossible, the sort of utopian yeah. character and aesthetic that goes along with it, which in some respects, I mean, I wouldn't want to say they aren't necessarily utopian aspects to more uh, working class politics, but like is a sort of vanguard, which sort of rejects the hard work and uh, sort of messiness of building movements. Do you think there's right. a sort of aesthetic legacy has continued in protest to sex in a sort of alienating way that's been a sort of vanguard distance that you speak you spoke of earlier between the working class and the sort of self-styled vanguard i i I really do and um i'm going to say something very unpopular here but um um i i think actually it's not unpopular on the left now (laughs) i I think occupy wall street was a really good example of that you know there was a sense that capitalism was quailing before the forces of um protest after the 2008-2009 financial crisis and um we saw a vanguard protest movement not be able to formulate any demands, not be able to organize any infrastructural lasting party um, organization because it was so in love with its own um, non its own horizontality, its own anarchist process, which I found very pro- very problematic and routinized, like you know stacking and mic checks and all that. I was like. Mm. This is worse than a faculty meeting, you know. No one can talk. <laughs> There's actually no spontaneity at all. And the people who learned that process were very—they were like the enforcers of Rogers' rules in a regular faculty meeting. It was—they were like the anti-bureaucratic bureaucrats of um, the of um, protest movement. And um, I, I, I think that the whole being in love with spontaneity has lasted a really long time. Like. There's no left discipline. I, I, that's. Do you um, have any? Actually, just on that amazing point. about Bernie and Corbyn is that we saw the reemergence of left discipline two years ago. So. But I wanted to ask you on that specific point. How do you think it's transmitted? So the fact how that do I think still it's transmitted. Oh, that's a very good question. Very, very, very good question. So I think it has to do with um, Protestantism and the professional managerial classes internalization of a secularized Protestantism. Because what these people are really into is feeling virtuous and better than other people. Like if you just yell out like, I disagree, you're you know, you're giving into your impulses and they're actually just policing you in this like virtue signaling way. And um, it's very austere actually. Um, despite its sort of um, veneer of hedonism. Um, I also think that one of the things that really lost me was the fact that people got prestige from their, you know, the length of the occupation that they were able to, you know, sleep at night and do all this stuff. I had a young kid at the time, so I could only spend four to five hours, you know, and they occupied Irvine um, City Hall at, at any given time. And, you know, you could just see that I was not that cool because I just wasn't there very much. I mean, I gave what I could, but like I didn't sleep in the I, I didn't sleep in the dirt. You know, I didn't. There, there is this like asceticism, this crypto religiosity that gets transmitted, um, but also I, I, I really do think that um, it, there's a class formation that has to do with um, disciplines and self-control, and um, I mean, for instance, it, it, yeah. Anyway, I'm just well, you're saying it's basically middle middle class. It's the continuity right. of its middle class right. composition. Then, yeah. I mean, I was exactly. just going to sort of add exactly. that to exactly. sort of bring this point out more. I mean, uh, there's two things to point out here. One, who actually has the time to sit in all of these meetings? I mean, if you if you look exactly. at like, a general exactly. assembly during occupied Wall Street, lasts six seven hours. It's a, it's a complete exactly. day. 
Meanwhile, like an occupation, say, which is led by a militant social movement in Brazil, they have a meeting for an hour just to get the basics out the way. But there's also something to it in the sort of HR culture that's been built up uh, both in the NGR sector and in the, you know, sort of corporate sector and particularly in academia. All of these meetings last a long time and people seem to be <laughs> not a be imaginable, a more efficient way of doing business because everyone needs to have a say. There needs to be this due process. And maybe there's something connected there. I do. I, I think it's also like highly misogynistic and anti-mom because I, I really did have a kid mm-hmm. with a lot um, who was real who would come with me to some things, but he had a lot of needs. My husband was working, and I would think, you know, one of the things that real radical groups do is they get childcare up and running, and then yeah. I yeah. never saw yeah. any of that. Yeah. I never yeah. saw any of that. Like if I could have brought, you know, I wouldn't have stayed six hours, but I could have stayed maybe one hour more, and you know, had him play somewhere, but. Um, there was never any infrastructural um, thinking like that. There just was never any, there was never going to be infrastructure. I mean, the Black Panthers fed people in Oakland. I feel like we need to give people childcare so women can participate more fully mm-hmm. in these movements. And um, So is childcare, um, that- childcare shows you that there's hierarchy then? Is that the test? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, it's too normative. Okay, this is what I was going to come back to is that Neon David Graeber and all those guys, they're still subcultural and countercultural types. Like, they still hate normies. This is what is really powerful yeah. in Angela's yeah. book, Angela Na- um, Nichols' book. But normalization is what they don't want. But they yeah. want a kind of routinized spontaneity that's actually against normalization. So and if you can I, go if you can go back a little bit into the past, okay. um, because one thing which ties into what you're just saying, as well as the lack of self-discipline that you've referred to, the kind of uh, desire for purity and to kind of be above it all, was the ge- degeneration of the 68 radicals into uh, terrorism, with the Red Army faction in Germany, the Red Brigades in Italy. Um, and one thing which I wanted to ask you about specifically is because you've written about this in a slightly different way, about Philip Roth's American Pastoral, which reflects on right. this in a different way. So maybe right. you could tell us a little right. bit about that. The Philip Roth thing. So um, I know he's like a total reactionary in the pig, but um, I find <laughs> his take on the 60s so fascinating. Oh, you're No, I find his take on the 60s so fascinating because it does go back to this idea of um, um, the hate of just his not understanding that that um, this whole generation just hated civilization. And um, that goes back to like the Freudian moment in the 30s when Freud looked at the fascists and said, you know, these people just hate civilization, too. The -hmm. the Germans just hate civilization. He writes civilization and it's discontents. And um, the ties that bind a society or that bind people, let's not even talk about collectivities. Um, um, Freud was talking about eros, literally erotics, and um, Roth was talking about the family and the company and the worker to his work, all of those ties were just hated by the counterculturalists, by the most extreme vanguardist counterculturalists. You know, they just hated um, any kind of um, thing that people cared about, any kind of relationship that people cared about. It was like this acid bath. And, um, And I do think Roth got something about the 60s and, um, you know, Vietnam made American young people, very privileged American young people, hate America. And it was awful. Vietnam was completely awful. But at the same time, um, the American society was experiencing one of the most massive wealth distribution down, processes of wealth distribution down um, any country on any planet in history has seen you know where um you have by 1961 the top um income tax rate is 90 percent the uc is free um three million young men and women fewer women came back from the war and they went to college for free if you could get into harvard if you could get a university of alabama the army paid for you to go to school for four years now we have students coming out with a hundred thousand um, dollars worth of debt after four years. I mean, that transfer of wealth and social capital was so amazing. And yet you had this generation who decided that, you know, we were just going to spit on this country and destroy it all. And we just hated everything. And I, I mean, in some ways, um, 
I can sympathize with it, but I'm a little too young to actually really identify with it. I'll tell you the story about someone who I really, really loved. He was um, um, Martin Aviles. He was um, the publisher of Lusitania, this Portuguese-English art and theory journal. He came from a family of um, very wealthy Portuguese. He served in the Portuguese-Angolan War. Um, he came to New York and he um, built this magazine. He had family money. He was running away from his family. He built this magazine. It was very, very grand bourgeois and bohemian at the same time. But he, but he was completely destroyed by the war. Um, after uh, a period in New York, he actually went back to Portugal because the Portuguese have good VA hospitals for people who are suffering from PTSD. And he had been an alcoholic for a lot of his life. And he was a really gifted artist. And in 2007, I think right before the financial crash, I remember going to see him in, um, in Lisbon because a bunch of Portuguese were putting together a commemoration of Lusitania and I had been one of the guest editors and I love my team but in this restaurant he said why are young people not doing anything why aren't they revolting why aren't they saying no to the car no to the house no to the family <laughs> and I said, they can't get that they, they can't get the car they can't get the family they can't get the girl they can't get the boy I mean, this is what people want now because they can't have them. And it was so aristocratic and so um, um, deeply embedded in a kind of class revolt that he had undergone. I mean, he rejected his family. He, well, he had uh, his family fortune and their prestige in Portugal. He hated the Portuguese um, imperial adventures in Africa and so wanted to throw out all of these things. And then I'm thinking... You know, do you, does he realize what has happened in the United States over the past 40 years? It, all of these things have been taken away from working class people. Every yeah. single one of those things. And there does seem to be a sense, I mean, part of the motivation also even in doing this episode is a way of trying to, um, I guess, come to terms with 68 or, or um, to be explicit and self-conscious about the influences that it's had and also challenge those who seem to be repeating it uh, ad infinitum, thinking that it hasn't somehow done its job, you know, the, the right. kind of ignoring the right. cultural and intellectual legacies of the 60s of 68 however you want to portray it um i i think you guys have a very i mean you guys are um not the you you all are taking a very different view of this i've just been invited to um nyu berlin (coughs) just having a 50th anniversary of 68 commemoration and the word aesthetics is in the title. I really don't understand why. <laughs> I was like, why Why is this in your title? And, of course, it's like art school and they're art historians, but I'm still stuck on this. Like, I don't I don't understand. Okay, I'll, I'll pull it up and tell you exactly what it's called. But you go, you talk while I find my yeah, uh, I mean, um, invitation. There's a, th- when one of the legacies we wanted to draw out and something that you referred to already was horizontalism, um, which, I mean, I guess it's characterized by an apparent emphasis on internal democracy within left organizations. But it seems to be something more than that. Uh, I, I would say that it's a rejection of political authority itself. And you can see it in the yes. hostility to discussions about planning, whether it's economic planning or any um, form of organizational planning and to strategic thought itself. You know, just, just go out and do stuff, follow your desires, um, and we just can all share in collective decision making, but without any real decisions being taken. I mean, that's my very skeptical view of what horizontalism is. Uh, do you agree with that? Okay, no, just... I think I absolutely agree with that, and I would actually radicalize that a little more and say that um, the fetish for spo- of, of spontaneity versus statism actually fits very well with the neoliberal program. Because the neoliberal program says nobody can know about the Mm -hmm. reality nobody can know about the social actuality the market knows everything it processes information and faster than we can ever like the ai was in the notion in hayek and von mises before anyone even thought there could be an ai and so all we can do is act spontaneously and what state socialism like an unglamorous forms of social democracy can do is they're just into planning and hierarchy and bureaucracy and you know taking care of like the nitty gritty and the details and they're just um, mindless and soulless paper pushers that the spontane the fetishes of spontaneity fall right into this neoliberal paradigm where you have this radically unknowable complexity and then 
the only way to counter it is through these like pure affective inten- intensities. Mm-hmm. You also see this in in education as well, the celebration of the spontaneity of the student, that it's it's all about what what comes out straight away. It's not about any kind of uh, disciplining or, I guess, um, any any authority. So it really seems that that's transferred to some pretty problematic uh, education ideas, at least in at least in the UK. Yeah, Yeah, I think that there's a general deauthorization. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I'm just going to expand on this. It's like, there's two things that really, like, uh, stand out here. One is that I think this, uh, for instance, this fetishization on the spontaneous powers of uh, subaltern people, to use the sort of lexicon, uh, as and then mediated through non-state actors like NGOs, seems to be, Mm. rather than, like, the direct... you know, high building of ways of deploying power. And secondly, I really think with the student question that George points out, I see it so many of your colleagues, is that even when students are wrong, people have to be praised and they're not told they're wrong. It's like all about building confidence in the way that people, like I see a lot of like students get told they are right, even when they're wrong the whole time. So they, they just I, can't I thought it was prison. only an American thing. How, oh. how is this happening everywhere in the world? <laughs> uh, the point of community is I think these models have been exported. the American empire. Yes. Yes. Oh, I mean, especially think this like this export model uh, of like yes. horizontalism has definitely come from the U.S. and Western Europe, but it's everywhere now. It's everywhere now. That's really frightening. Yeah. So um, there's this whole um, um, idea that nothing that that there is no creativity within forms, and so you have to have this kind of formlessness. That, as I said before, though, is actually very, very well policed um, in term and improvisation. And I think that, you know, and I allude to this in the book, but actually it's become even more powerful today, is that what you have then is rather than having intellectual uh, debate, contradiction, antagonism, adversariality, negation, you know, uh, sublation in any kind of dialectical manner, what you have is simply... Um, the management of responses and that kind of hyper um, responsiveness is actually what we want to cultivate in students rather than thought and that kind of thing can be measured through instruments like you know um, clickers or you know um, very fast like uh, collaborations on Google Docs or you know the new interfaces those kinds of improvisations can be measured as um, bytes in on interfaces, whereas you have, if you actually have discussions and contradiction and negation, you have there is an affectual discomfort that takes place. Someone feels like they're wrong. Someone feels like they don't know. And um, a lot, all of these interfaces are about actually producing a kind of non-knowledge, and that is nevertheless highly policed and metrically. And, and measurable, and and um, and big data um, friendly, and it's really so, frightening. So yeah, I, I, absolutely fascinating. The I guess one another element of the the legacy that we wanted to draw out was this. Um, I guess we need to talk about young people um, and the cult <laughs> of youth that maybe has um, May sixty eight is one of its key key notes. So yes. I think yeah. So May sixty eight is often seen as essentially a revolt by sort of transgressive youth. Do you, do you agree with this? And do you think, you know, and if you do, do you think we can train, trace a, a lineage from, from there through anti-globalization process today, identity yeah. politics, maybe the alt-right even? How do you see all oh, these? I, I, do, I, do, I, I totally um, agree with this, and I'm terrified by this new um, rhetoric in the United States that the young anti-gun um, kids are being burdened with this idea that they've, invented this whole new form of politics and walking out of classes they finally are able to do what they the adults can't they've seen that you know government and politicians have failed therefore they will be you know just protesting spontaneously I, you know i see a lot of ngos on the horizon too and um um private actors able to insert themselves in all of this stuff but there's this fetishism of the authentic you know um um, revolt and the authentic youth, but um, it, it it's very very deleterious 
not just to political processes, but to actually the youth actors. Because as we also know, it's harder and harder for people to achieve any semblance of adulthood under neoliberalism and austerity, right? So I would say like the burden, placing the burden on people who are not fully formed, who are not like gut gebildet, you know, in in all senses of that, that in the best sense of the building, that is just total abdication of responsibility. People used to say this in new media too, like, oh, the youth, they're using new media in such different ways. <laughs> Every single study shows that young people use all forms of media in very, very superficial ways. They're not like digging into the code or hacking. You know, that whole hacking yeah. was the um, thing of the 90s where we thought like, all these young male geniuses were doing these things. <laughs> the exploits was going to, you know, take down capitalism, and I think it actually kind of led to the alt right. Yes, because yeah. there's still that investment in like this, you know, radical, non-normative, nothing to lose figure who's going to come in male always and you know create, you know, disrupt everything. So rather than building, you have disruption, and allegedly now the young teenagers of Mar um, Stoneman Douglas High School are going to disrupt gun laws. But more um, worryingly than this, even, is um, Eric Green's daughter, Erica Green, died of a heart attack at like 29. She had two kids, and she was under so much stress because people were always telling her that she had to go up front and protest, you know, her father's death. You mean Erica Garner? Death. Garner, Garner, yes, yeah, sorry, Garner, Garner, yes. Erica Garner. For those who don't know, and, Erica um, Garner um, was the daughter of a um, black man in the Bronx, who was basically choked to death uh, by police. I think it was police. Staten Island. Sta yeah. yeah, Staten Island. He was choked to death by police on the street for, for selling, selling six um, cigarettes. cigarettes. Yes, and his daughter. And then his daughter became a major activist figure in New York and uh, was famously part of the Bernie Sanders campaign in the very effective move, uh, advert. That's just the background. Thank basically. you. Thank you. Right, and she died of a heart attack last year. Yeah, it was very sad. So there's this. So no one was saying to her that you know maybe this is you have two young children maybe this isn't the role for you like other people should be doing this like I I feel like it's an abdication of everyone's responsibility to have her go up there. I'm not blaming the Sanders campaign. I think there's a lot of the people around her were I'm um, encouraging her to do this and um, this goes back to um, for me this fetish of. Um, a non-differentiation like we all have different roles to play and um, the spontaneity fetishists just say you know everything can be done DIY and it comes out of you know communitarianism and the early days of the internet and you know we all are um, entrepreneurs of ourselves etc cetera, etc cetera. and they they just want to abjure the fact that actually we live in advanced industrial societies and there are people do different things at different levels of capacity and we need specialization yeah so I mean, the whole diy spirit also um, um I mean, that participates bring, in this that brings us back to like the question of horizontalism because like if you are sort of against hierarchies and organizations and the very idea of a bureaucracy you sort of against the idea of actually building something which works beyond individuals and not dependent on like uh, certain faces in the sense that, uh, you know, part of what organization building, what political parties in a sense are a division of labor, because as we mentioned earlier, not everyone wants to spend all day in a meeting. And like this idea that uh, somehow, like for instance, a bureaucracy is an essential part of any organization. It's not necessarily bad. Yeah. Any trip buddy who's worked in the union movement knows that when it's not glamour strike time, which is most of the time, um, right. is that there's basically the problems in the workplace every day and somebody has to deal with them. And that's why you need a bureaucracy. It's not that you right. need to valorize it, but like this sort of imminent hostility to division of labor and things it puts all this burden on people. And you see people like getting burnt out in uh, this right. activist culture every two yeah. years. and They just go back and do something right. else. Because because there's actual continuity and processual um, um, and, and um, objective processes that can exist beyond individuals, and so that's also why I think a lot of the um, post sixty eight stuff has what it actually produced on campuses in the United States, um, and we imported a lot of these people from France was stars, because in the anti Weberian you know ferment of sixty eight we decided that there were going to be these geniuses who are going to say these amazing things and you know they were all beyond rules and so academia which had always been kind of plotting but also an important um, place for um, 
professional autonomy from the interests of the market, as John Dewey and the progressives um, instantiated it, this was like a good export, not fully exported to the world yet, because most other forms of academia are extremely feudal. America, I would say, is the least feudal academic structure. It, you know, it's it's got other problems, but it's because of Dewey and the AAUP, academic freedom still exists here in a really um, in a in a way that took a hundred years to build, and maybe will take fifty years to bring down. But um, we suddenly had these like stars, these series stars, where you had you know your average professor making thirty five thousand dollars a year, and then suddenly like Frederick Jameson or Slavoj Žižek would come in and they would make you know thirty five thousand dollars for a lecture. So you had this inflation of importance of these star figures, and a lot of them came out of sixty eight. A lot of them came out of the cultural ferment of that time. Like Etienne Balibar comes to UCI every year, and we still live on the fumes of this idea that there are these prophetic voices who can break down all bureaucracy. Not saying he's guilty of this, but a lot of these people I've seen, they come in and they just act like prima donnas <laughs> because they're above all rules. They won't do student evaluations. They won't correct papers. They're just going to impart their genius to you. And the rest of us sort of plod along and, you know, um, keep things running. And so there's Sound, just... Sounds not... utopian. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and um, we have a few fetishized voices that repeat themselves over and over again, like Judith Butler and Wendy Brown and all of and we and Lauren Berlant, they're all figures that people are looking for now, looking to for, you know, this kind of, you know, insight and prestige. So when they get the invitation, the institution glows momentarily. But the kinds of um, structures that permit this to take place are, you know, generally held in contempt and they're called administration. So this is why I take this very ambiguous role about the professional managerial mm. class is that I think we need better professionals. You know, I don't think we need to throw out professional managerialism. We need better management, better professionals, more adversarial relationships with management. But right now we have managers who don't want to manage. They want to innovate. And we have professionals who don't want to be professionals because they want to be stars. <laughs> and yeah. so it's like the worst of all fucking worlds. I mean, yeah. Pardon my friend. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> for instance, like point. whenever some, uh, I mean, I'm not, I signed many of these things as well, even though I'm not definitely not a star, but like uh, these um, basic thing, these petitions go out every time something really bad happens and you get these names mm. who really don't mean much outside the academy, like Judith Butler, uh, right, right. Adding and this is like treated like it's a political victory in itself, getting these stars to sign something when it's really not even that big a symbolic thing because these people don't have a social base. They're not part of an organization. They don't lead anyone to anything. They have a cultural right. capital in the right. academy. Right, right. And then what it creates, because there are so few jobs and, ours, and prestige is, you know, monopolized by only a few um, great big universities, what you have is a lot of thought conformity. Because then you just feel like, oh, I can't question this. I have to, this is my activism. So-and-so signed this. I have to sign on this. And um, that's a lot easier to do than support your janitor's union or go out and walk the picket line. We're on strike right now. Um, the Ask Me union is on strike right now in the UC system. So yesterday, um, they asked a couple of professors to speak at the flagpoles, and you know there was like two. They're they're just they're, they're the usual handful of us who do that, and we've become a much more STEM science oriented university. So it's not like I expect a huge turnout from the humanities and social sciences, but um, this the, there's a very kind of like you know click clickbait um, activism and we've forgotten what the real as you've all described it you know um day-to-day -day grind of um unionized workforces entail mm. and uh what you what they get what they but what they can achieve for people is so amazing the difference between getting a three percent raise and a six percent raise for someone who makes um you know eighteen to twenty thousand dollars a year that's huge that's like huge right now in the united states you know there's a huge struggle in dsa over um uh, whether um, or not democratic we socialists of america by the way sorry for... yeah democratic socialists of america which you know ballooned to the massive number of 30,000 members after the sanders campaign which is still the largest socialist organization in america um they, there's a huge um power struggle i would say over a majority who want to 
back a single-payer campaign for national health care. And then this other group who are calling the rest of us racist and ableist because they <laughs> want to abolish prisons and the police force. <laughs> I mean, that brings us to the next question. This, this is, I think, is connected connect to this particularly. Uh, is a tacit assumption that the youth as a generational block are radical. Why do you think this is so? And I mean, this really goes behind a lot of these things. It's seen as coming from young people and thus inherently radical. And we, if only the, we wait for the kids to take over. And we mentioned that within the gun protests. Why is it sort of this tacit assumption about youth or radical? I think it's really about the logic of capital. Youth are the best early adopters of innovation and um, consumerism. And it really goes back to... Um, this moment of urbanization. I mean, Krakauer wrote about it really beautifully. If you look at the early 60s in terms of rock and roll, um, there are these kinds of um, popular culture phenomena where, um, and it often begins with working class youth who are trying to escape the drudgery of the assembly line or whatever, who, um, you know, are part of jazz Berlin or New York or, you know, Chicago and who are throwing themselves into these new forms of pleasure, new forms of music, you know, working class um, white youth who adopted rock and roll in the early 60s and then the Beatles were working class guys from Liverpool who um, they are vanguardist innovators on the level of leisure, like working class escapist leisure. Mm -hmm from the grind of work, those kinds of um, movements are really important for capitalism because capitalism needs always to refresh our desire to consume and innovate because there's always the problem of over overproduction. Every day there's the problem of overproduction. So this um, craving for the new is something that didn't used to be part of university hierarchy or um, Democratic Party institutions or, you know, what we think of as hierarchical institutions. The the new thing now is that these institutions have totally um, internalized the fetish for the new. So yeah. every day I get an email about innovation and entrepreneurialism with, as part of my university email thing. Um, what they're trying to cap, there used to be this sense, you know, in like, the old bourgeois um, institutions that, you know, institutions represented continuity and youth represented disruption. So when you have um, 68 come around, you have a kind of mass movement of disruption because the boomers were just a bigger generation of people than anybody else at the time. And probably one and which then, and probably one which had a had a greater self-consciousness of itself as a generation uh, than anything previous to that. As a set of consumption habits. Yeah, as a, as a mass group with a set of defining consumption habits yep and, and i so mean something that, i wanted to to put you on a little bit i mean on this generational question and something which we kind of briefly discussed on on twitter the other day is i mean maybe this uh, notion of generational politics which we've kind of absorbed or, or has been handed down to us from 1968 and so on uh is a spent force, perhaps. I don't know if, if generations these days have such a consciousness of themselves. And there's, I know there's a lot I of discussion I, around millennials and what the boomers did to us, and you know they had houses and we don't, and so on. But um, I, I wonder. Um, I, I I agree with you there, but I think it um, helps the um, centrists or political prognosticators who don't really want to deal with politics. Because what they um, analyze the present situation, rather than the class struggle, they'd rather look at the generational struggle. Because in the mm. generational struggle, the new will win out, and capitalism needs to justify its throwing out of people who are obsolete. So if you're old, you're just like you're spent. You're a spent force. You're you're like you know, gonna need um, your adult diapers soon and you've got the young people who there were you know innovating and consuming in completely new ways and they're completely fascinating and we have to go study them um that that struggle um is part of for me the bourgeoisie always wanting to be on the winning side and of course like naturally because of age the youth are seem like they're winning i don't know what they're winning but you know market share whatever but um um what it also disguises is However, despite this kind of obsolescence in, in uh, taste culture, um, the boomers are standing on consuming more of the world's resources and capital than any other generation. Just by dint of you know post-war growth and the pension systems that have been destroyed for younger people, so 
I, I, I do hope. All right, so here's something I will say from being an old person is that in the 90s, when I first started teaching um, in graduate schools, and I was very young, I was probably the same age as my graduate students, everyone was into pluralism, Deleuze, they were anti-dialectical, nobody wanted to read Frankfurt School or even psychoanalysis, I was just old-fashioned, whatever. Um, there were all these post-Marxists, post-modernists, and, and it lasted until 2008, until the crisis. This new generation is much more interested in old-style schools of politics, much less bedazzled by postmodernism and Deleuze. There was a whole, like, 10-, 15-year period when, you know, every theory boy who came into graduate school was like, you know, I want to read Deleuze. And I said, <laughs> oh, sorry, I don't know anything about it. I, I would say things like, it's too hard for me to understand. I don't understand <laughs> it. I can't, I can't help you. Um, and I felt like I was kind of like Bernie. You know, I didn't change. I just seemed more fuddy-duddy. And now suddenly um, the fuddy-duddiness has um, been reinvigorated in large part because of 2008-2009. Um, so whether or not there could thing... be any organized re reaction to this, I don't know. So picking up on some of these themes, um, we focused on the youth and I want to flip it a bit to think about um, the old people who used to be the youth, I guess. So you mentioned Bernie yeah. Sanders. And what's interesting, I mean, he is a 68er, right? I mean, so mm -hmm. that says he belongs to that generation. He does. So even on the one hand, if you have Occupy embodying the horizontality of 1968, on the other hand, you have an old-fashioned kind of social democrat who's also a 68er. So... On both ends, we're ruled, you know, by 68ers. That's and true. And that's not we're even tyrannized. counting. You could say we're tyrannized by. Well, absolutely, because <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to say, I mean, if you think about politicians elsewhere, um, you know, Hillary, Hillary Clinton was somebody who's made by 68. Donald Trump is obviously kind of defined by the fact that he didn't go to Vietnam. Um, well, he was one of those right-wing guys in six. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I'm just, you know, so I mean, I'm thinking there's a whole generation of people who are defined by 68 in, you know, being for it or in their opposition to it. But particularly on the left, there's a whole generation who became leading third way politicians. And we still have, say, you know, Daniel Cohen Bendit in the European Parliament. Right. Um, right. So anyway, so I'd like to, what I, I guess what I'm asking is, um, what do you make of the fact that the leaders of 68 still rule us today? Um, oh, in Europe, I think it's really, really profoundly ironic because um, I was just reading James Hartfield's book about um, the EU and the rise of the right in Italy, um, and they're still we're still fighting the ghosts of '68, let's say, because um, the communists were threw themselves for the EU, and um, his thesis is that when the communists went for Brussels, um, that was when the far right got it got its teeth into like working class Italians because basically when the communists wanted Euro cosmopolitanism they gave up on their local politics and they gave up on um, democracy um, within the nation and you know he thinks that Brussels is just a complete neoliberal um, formation that suppresses any kind of local politics so I, I don't know what to say about this and how we get out of this impasse. I mean, part of it, part of me um, um, thinks that what we all need to do is actually go back to the 1930s and look at that more closely. But, you know, everyone who's part of that is dead. So we're thinking about how to um, reimagine oppositional politics outside of the shadow of 68. I don't know. I, well, I was going to say, know. but isn't there a so? But isn't there a danger in counterposing one wing to the other wing? Sanders is, you know, Sanders to occupy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I. So, um, for me, what's the danger though? What's the danger there? Well, I suppose we're still tyrannized by. You know, I mean, the point is, if '68 failed, we're still kind of ricocheting between one failed project and another. We might okay, be. So we might find organization more aesthetically appealing. But if it's a politics that failed, you know, why should why go for this over the other one? Let me just uh, okay. Step so in, step uh, so here's what I think about that is that I actually think that Sanders is part of an American left that is more related to um, 1930s style social democracy, and as unglamorous as social democracy is, I think that's the only way out for the United States right now, and that really wasn't something that the 68ers wanted at all. 
I mean, I'm just going to push back on full quickly. There's all, like one of the legacies, for instance, in uh, um, say, uh, even though there's obviously failures in the United States, was the politics that went into '68 that was less glamorous. There was the hard work put into, uh, say, the civil rights organizing, uh, which okay. involved a lot of communists and elements of the union movement that went before it, and that was quite successful. I mean, if anything, '68 right. marked the culmination of that sort of politics, and then which branched out into uh, different forms. And it was, in some senses, uh, a, if we read '68 purely as the uh, you know, oppositional youth uh, smoking weed and like burning American flags. It's missing out that there was also a number of political currents that went through the 60s and carried on to the 70s and more were defeated in the 70s. They were looking, for instance, uh, to turn the Democratic Party left to revitalize the trade union movement. You had a bunch of strikes come afterwards. Even oh, if- but I'm not. I'm not saying. I'm not. I'm not saying there were no successes oh. associated with '68. I suppose I'm saying why are we? You know, why is the millennial generation effectively still beholden to them? Because you know, civil rights had its successes, but who represents civil? You know, that generation of civil rights people at the moment, and it's um, you know, it's a kind of elite cadre mm. of um, of the black kind of black pastors. You know. And the kind of the people who control black municipal politics. So yeah. the guy who's sent up in um, in the wire, the Baltimore mayor. It's those kinds of characters. Um, so it's, um, it's even you know, more I mean, they they read to a They're, dead end as well. No, no, it's even more prodigious than that. Karen Ferguson has a book about how the Ford Foundation itself co-opted all the leaders of um, the civil mm. rights movement. Mm. Private foundations um, are incredibly powerful in co-opting the language of anti-racism and what and it's become diversity now and it's just shut down any notion of social justice that isn't like an agonistic you know white black racist anti-racist paradigm so i find anti-racism to be fully neoliberalized but i don't have an answer about you know how we get out of the um, paradigms i i do think that you shouldn't underestimate how the ruling elite of the world understood how dangerous 68 was and how the shock doctrine and the Volcker doctrine and deindustrialization, globalization as policies um, within the United States were um, about attacking worker power so that um, that alliance between um, students, white collar workers and blue collar workers would be broken and white collar workers got more and more of the rewards of capitalism and became what Robert Wright called like symbolic analyst and the working class was just left to um, you know depressed wages horrible um, life prospects and you know humiliation and lack of dignity um, that has rendered us you know victims of this latest political actuality yeah, and I think maybe to, to sum up, I mean, because the way that politics is often discussed nowadays is a sort of critique of capitalism, which is one which stands rather in contrast to the, what you've been talking about um, and what we've been talking about. So maybe one of the ways that we could summarize the cultural changes ensuing from the 68 revolt is that critiques of capitalism can be divided into social critique, uh, focusing on exploitation, poverty, and so on, and an artistic critique, which is on disenchantment, inauthenticity, a loss of meaning, and so on. I mean, this is Boltanski and Capello for those who are interested. Right. But, um, you know, I mean, do you agree, I guess, that looking back, 68 was about an artistic critique? I mean, it, it, 68 is still seen as kind of cool these days, maybe naive, maybe a bit too bu- too much of a beautiful soul. But there's this repetition of this mode of critique, um, perhaps still today. Um, the, the repetition of that... Yeah, it's that. That's very sad. But I guess that I, I, I feel like it's pretty exhausted, though. Um, mm. Even that mode of critique. I mean, what? But one of the things that has happened within Silicon Valley, and um, um, Fred Turner has a great book on this, from counterculture to cyberculture, is that the um, critique of alienation that came out of you know sort of these existential. Um, disenchantment with traditional forms of work actually became resolved through Silicon Valley forms of work by just making us be at work all the time. So gadgets became a way of overcoming the division of labor, but also the division of the working day. I mean, Marx writes about the working day, and that's one of the most fundamental critiques in Capital, but um, 
it's and and the you know the sixty eighters understood this and they wanted more from life than just the, they understood that there could be fully automated communism or that the there was that pleasure itself should be liberated from the hands of you know the bourgeoisie, but what happened was. They just eliminated the division between work and leisure, and leisure has become subsumed by work. So I can't tell you um, all these vanguardist forms of work that Silicon Valley participates in were all forged by artists that I know. Like, they are the people who are never on vacation. They are always networking. Like, their studio and practice and their social lives are just never um, differentiated. And so when... You know, in the, up till the 1930s, people struck and died so that they could just be on the job for eight hours. Now we're like 24-hour constant contact, you know, subsumed to be um, life and work are all wrapped up together. And our very physical beings and wellness is meant to gear us up better to, so that we can yeah. perform better at work and be happier at the same time. I feel like... Um, there's been a really risible resolution of that of that aesthetic critique in um, the non-differentiation between work and pleasure that um, has been fully realized by 68ers and Silicon Valley. All right. I think that actually is a brilliant summation and maybe a good place to end. <laughs> <laughs> it's so grim. But no, that's, really that's, that was fantastic. That was a, total, that yeah. was a downer. I um, mean, these are downer moments, though. all right that's been alpha bunga bunga on the ghosts of may 68 catch you back here in a fortnight for a discussion on columbia the war on drugs the farc and the upcoming elections there catch you later bye-bye Thank you.